welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become the CEO of a major corporation? And what can we all learn from the top CEOs about running smaller businesses or better managing our own lives? We'll explore those questions with our guest on this episode, Carolyn Dewar, who is a senior partner at the McKinsey & Company consulting firm. She coaches many Fortune 100 CEOs to maximize their effectiveness in the role. And she's also the co-author of the new book, CEO Excellence, the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us what a CEO really does. I mean, I think that's kind of a, a mysterious title sometimes. Absolutely. And that was part of our impetus for, for writing the book and doing the research. There are sort of these mythical roles, right, that have so much power. And what actually is the job anyway? You know, we had a chance to talk to about 70 of the world's best CEOs. And this was one of the questions we asked, right? What is the job? And as we stepped back, they all had, they had different ways of saying it, but they all really came down to six elements of the role. And some are familiar for any leader and some are unique, right? So the six elements were they have to set a bold direction, right? Really set the vision for where the company's going. They have to manage the organization and make sure that the culture and the organization structure and talent are set up for success. They have to work through their team. So their top team is really the way that they get a lot of things done. They need to manage their board. And that's a piece that's sort of unique to the CEO role. And then increasingly, they have to manage a whole set of external stakeholders, media, regulators, the public, who all have a say in what their company does. And then the last part is themselves, right? How do they manage their own time and energy? How do they figure out what they should be doing? So those six spinning plates, we call them, are all the things they're doing at once. I want to talk about that vision aspect. I am fascinated by how Amazon and Netflix are totally different than they were when I was growing up. And I can't imagine that Reed Hastings or Jeff Bezos knew they were going to look like they do now all that, all that long ago. Mm -hmm. So how did those visions evolve? Yeah, I think this idea of really setting a bold vision and letting it evolve is so key. We did talk to Reed Hastings. And in that particular case, you know, when he started the company, he didn't frame it as we're going to send DVDs by mail, right? If they had framed their company mission as beating Blockbuster at the time and doing DVDs by mail, they probably would have stayed that way or stayed that way for a long time. He actually set the ambition early that they were going to transform entertainment. And it turns out the first way they did that was disrupting DVDs. But then they even had to disrupt themselves and say, we're not going to do DVDs. We're going to move to streaming, which took away some of their original business, right? That was a courageous move. But it was because they had that bigger goal in mind of wanting to really transform entertainment. You know, in a totally different sector, Ajay Banga, who is the CEO of MasterCard, when he started 10 years ago, they were $12 billion. They were trying to beat the other credit card companies, right? It was them versus Visa. And one day he was sitting there and he looked around and realized that at the time, 90% of the world's transactions were not happening by credit card companies at all. It was actually still cash, right? You think back 10 years ago, there was still a lot more cash. And he went to the company and kind of said, we're not thinking about the right game. This isn't about us trying to fight over market share of this little piece of transactions. 
we should be trying to kill cash. And he transformed with his company into a technology company, essentially a payments company, much, much broader vision. And they went from 12 billion to 300 billion, right? They're, they're playing a whole new game now. And I think that's what's really important about some of these leadership roles is you have the chance to say, wait a minute, we're actually playing a different game, a bigger game, and dream a little about what that could be. What kind of an impact has the pandemic had on the average CEO? I mean, I think it's had a huge impact, just like it has on, on all of us, right? We were doing these interviews during the pandemic, so we asked them specifically, and the four main things they called out as different, one is this idea of boldness, right? Whether it was through necessity or not, we all realized that we had to change boldly and quickly, right? Five-year digitization plans were accomplished in three months, right? My grandma, who never thought people would shop online, suddenly would learn to do it in a week. And so companies learned that they can make big, bold change much faster if they have to. And now they're thinking about, now we know how to do that. If we applied that same thinking, not in a crisis, to say, what if we really move boldly and quickly? It, I think it's unlocked a whole set of possibilities. That's one piece. I'll hit the other two real quick. One was that the stakeholder piece has really changed, right? Gone are the days that as the CEO, you're just solving for your shareholders. I think we all realize the decisions they make affect their employees, their communities, health, all of these other things. And so they have to now consider all of the ripple effects of their decisions. And I think how they show up as leaders was the last one. One, one CEO phrased it as, my to-be list is just as important as my to-do list. Mm. So they realize that how they're showing up, the characteristics they're embodying, what they're role modeling, how human they're being, really mattered to their organization. They couldn't just be in an office somewhere else making calls, right? They had to show up, be on video conference, kind of be this almost pastoral care for their organizations that put a lot of folks way out of their comfort zone. I love how you use the quote from Doug Baker of Ecolab, who says that the way you get prepared for a crisis is never on the day of the crisis. But of course, none of us could have anticipated the COVID pandemic. Who do you think was the best prepared for that immediate shift to working from home? What what leader kind of prepared his people for, hey, this could happen someday. It may be a hybrid. And so people were okay with it and not overwhelmed. Such a great question. And I think the working from home was only one piece of the preparedness, right? I do think it is leaders who were very clear on what was most important for their organization, right? And, and were willing to release the trappings of what they thought was important, right? I, you know, there's one leader we talked to who, even though they worked from home, they still had to, you know, they didn't release their dress code and they made people work in shirts and ties on their couch for a while. And then they realized that was absurd, right? Because it wasn't about the shirt and the tie, it was about getting work done, right? right? And I think leaders who quickly realized what's important and what is just kind of the trappings that we thought were important, I mean, it also, beyond working from home, it goes to how they made these quick, bold decisions, right? You think about how decisions used to get bubbled up through seven layers of an organization, and there's the meeting before the meeting that then went, and it went on and on and on. Well, if you had to pivot your supply chain in three weeks, which is what some of these companies had to do, you had to break that glass. You had to break those rules. So suddenly, leadership teams were meeting every day for quick stand-ups. They were calling someone five levels down in the organization saying, you're closest. Tell us what's happening. What do you need? 
Okay, let's make it happen. So all of that hierarchy, a lot of folks who did this well were willing to, to break through that. And I think it's now causing a real question of, so do we snap back to the way we used to work? Or have we learned something that we can take forward about, you know, maybe some of the things we thought were important aren't so important. If you want to be a CEO, do you have to start on that path early on? Do you have mm-hmm. to know in college or just out of college that the CEO is is your goal? Right. Uh, that's a fun question. I, I mean, my instinct is no, and, and only in having had these conversations, fair enough, they're now all in the chair. But the number of them who said that wasn't actually their goal, that wasn't something they were deliberately pursuing. And in some cases, they were surprised when they were named. Now, obviously, you know, as it gets closer to the time, you get savvy and, and kind of do the right thing. But I think most leaders, I think Marilyn Hewson at Lockheed was a great one here. She said, the best preparation is actually just to do a really great job in each job that you're having, right? If you're too preoccupied by what's coming next and where do I want to go, and you drop the ball on your current role, that, you know, that's not going to work, right? And so any of the lessons learned from these CEOs could apply in any level that you're in now. Think boldly, really align and mobilize your team, manage your stakeholders well. Think about what is the work that only you can do and how do you delegate everything else? I mean, that's what it means to just act like a CEO in whatever role you're in. It'll serve you well. What strategies do you think that people have used to be successful in keeping that team dynamic during the pandemic, during work from home? And that doesn't have to mean that they're the CEO and they kept things together because you may have had a guy who was really under the radar, who stepped up, connected people, was able to, you know, figure out how to do meetings that were effective and fun. What made that kind of person stand out? I do think the kind of leadership it's taken in remote work um, has challenged some of our views of, of leaders, right? As you say, people who are more flexible, willing to be more human. You know, when your dog barks in the middle of the meeting, or um, I think it was Andrew, the, the CEO of Electronic Arts, was doing a town hall with like 5,000 people, and his son came in and wanted him to make a paper airplane. So he actually <laughs> apologized and paused, and, and he did it. And he went back, and he sort of said to people, you know, sorry for the interruption. But he got more great feedback from that moment because not only was he human, but frankly, he was showing everyone else that it was also okay for them to be human and for them to manage their life in the background. We were all kind of in it together. Um, And so, again, it's this kind of releasing the trappings, right? Not having a perfectly produced video that gets sent to your your organization, but you're doing it live on your iPhone, maybe going for a walk in your backyard. Right. I, I think that humanity is really, really shown through. And I hope that's something that doesn't snap back. Right. Something that we keep. How much time do most CEOs spend on the job per week? I mean, you know, there's this image that, oh, they don't really don't do very much. Uh, but but what's but the reality? Also the image, too, that they're doing stuff all the time and they right. don't have time for a family or friends because they're stuck. They're to their so phone. busy. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You so what, what's the reality? I will admit, I, I'm not sure that it's a job I would want. It, they are all consuming. I mean, they really are, but it doesn't mean that they're not happy. These are full-on jobs. And I would say the complexity and the scale of them is only increasing. Um, we did a bit of a straw poll. 80% of the folks we talked to work at some point, both days on the weekend and most days on their vacation, right? It just sort of is what they do. But I think what they do really well is they manage their time 
in a series of sprints, right? It's not just one sprint and it's not a marathon. You need to be able to have these moments of surging, but then restoring, right? Using your energy, getting your energy back. And I was struck by how intentional they were about managing their calendars for what gives them energy, right? And this notion of work is draining, home is energizing is a misnomer, right? For me, laundry, draining. Some things at work, super energizing, right? But most of these CEOs were really self-aware on what energized them and what didn't. And they planned their day, their week, their month, their year to make sure that it had those moments, right? There weren't so many things in a row that were a drag that they were going to just get into a bad place without having something that was going to lift them up. And for some folks that was seeing a customer because they're just like a sales guy at heart, right? For some people, it was spending time with their team or having time to buy themselves to think, right? They all knew what those things were, but you can't do this job unless you find some way of making it sustainable that works for you. I think it's really interesting how Ed Breen of DuPont was able to keep track of what was going on within the company and and make sure that there weren't any fires that started small and ended up getting really big using his red light, I'm sorry, red flag, green flag system. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, he was a great example, and many of them did this, where you have to be able to have some kind of dashboard, some kind of system to know what's going okay and where might you need to dive in, because you can't be across everything at once. And so he had a system where, you know, he had folks, you know, self-identify when they needed help or not. And part of the key is to make it okay to raise the red flag, right? If you're the kind of leader where if someone raises a red flag or a yellow flag even and says maybe something's off the rails and you pounce on them and, and make their life horrible, they're not going to do that again, right? So how do you frame it where people know to come to you when they need help, it's a safe place to come, and then you're going to work it together and make it right so that all the other things that are running smoothly can keep running? You need some sort of dashboard, right? Or else, as I say, the breadth is just too broad. Um, to, to do, be as involved as you want to be in everything. You just can't. How important is the average CEO to a corporation and how do you measure that importance? This is something we were, we were looking into and it's, I mean, at, at the baseline of the, the 200 top CEOs that we identified of kind of the Fortune, Fortune 2000, they created $5 trillion in excess value, which is the equivalent of the GDP of Japan versus other CEOs. So there is something about having the right leader that makes a difference. But at the same time, we all know it's a whole company that makes things work every day, right? And so I think it's figuring out what is the work that only the CEO can do? What are the decisions that require their input or the talent moves where they make sure the right people are in role so that they can lead? having a view of how the place is going to operate, the culture. There's a couple of these things that only the CEO can do and and focusing on those and then empowering the rest of the organization to run the day-to-day really is that kind of secret sauce. What does a great CEO do when they're faced with controversy themselves or when the company is? I'm, I'm pausing because I think it's such an important question and one, frankly, that CEOs are still working through, right? What, if it's a clear crisis, that's one thing. I think in the last few years, we've seen 
you know, the racial reckoning. We have the, you know, the war in Ukraine right now. We have socio and economic issues that have come up. I think CEOs are really wondering which issues should they weigh in on and which issues shouldn't they, right? And, and we've heard folks talk about there's some things, if it's in your four walls and it's a crisis or it was wrongdoing, it's on you, right? So if it was, you know, bad behavior, bad decision making in the four walls, you need to own up to that. You need to make it right. You need to dig in, right? There's another kind of concentric circle out, which is it's not in your four walls, but the issue will get in the way of your business's ability to operate and to deliver for your customers and employees. That's when you're starting to get into trade issues or other operating type issues, ESG, right? And then there's this even broader concentric circle of frankly values oriented issues where increasingly employees and customers are looking at companies saying, I will make my buying decision or my employment decision based on whether your values are in line with mine. And I want to know where you stand and what you think. And I think those ones are the ones that are the trickiest where CEOs are really trying to navigate, is that my place? Is that not my place? Right? When Brad Smith, you know, operating CEO of, of Intuit here in California, very much a blue state, right? And after the two presidential elections ago, his employees wanted him to make a statement about how terrible the outcome of the election was. And he was very clear and he said, look, I know that you're upset, but our customers are in all the states. Our customers are in the whole country. And it's not our place as a company to weigh in on a presidential election, but what you can count on me for are our values as a company. We stand for tolerance, we stand for integrity, we stand for all these things. So bringing it back to what, what we stand for as a company um, it, you know, is one way that I've seen folks really walk that fine line. Is it lonely at the top for most CEOs? I mean, do they find that once they, they get to that level in a corporation, there's really nobody that they can turn to for leadership? It can be a very lonely role. It's something we talk to a lot of them about. And their own peer network between CEOs is an important piece of helping with that. You know, Mary Barra at General Motors said you know, she was elevated from within her team and people she'd worked with for 20 years suddenly were treating her differently. She said, guys, I'm still married, right? I think, I think um, at Microsoft, Satya Nadella gave us a really interesting answer. He said, yes, it's the loneliest role and here's why. And in the way only he can, right? Very clearly, he said, it's an information asymmetry problem. No one beneath you sees everything that you see because you're this ultimate integrator. No one above you, like your board or other stakeholders, see everything that you see. You're the only one who has the whole picture. And because of that, it's inherently lonely, right? You're the only one that sees all the pieces. And so how do you have a few other folks in that tent with you um, that you can have as a sounding board and that will, will help you in some of these really tough moments? We have a lot of small business owners in our audience, and while they aren't dealing with major stakeholders, they do have family and friends who have invested in their company, and they want to keep them up to date and be honest, but you know, also make them feel like they're making a good investment. What advice do you have for them? I mean, what can they learn from top CEOs who've dealt with investors? And I think there's investors and there's board, and maybe there's there's a link between the two. I think on the board piece, the thing that really struck us was that felt different. You know, the prevailing wisdom is the board is something to be managed, right? You got to bring them along; they have to do their duty. These really great CEOs that we talked to, 
thought about it quite differently. They said, the, I need to engage my board so that I can help my board to help my business, right? I need to actually give them more information. I need to bring them along. I need to make sure they're deep enough and have the right skills, frankly, so that they can be helpful. It was quite a different frame than kind of the, the typical view of how to think about your board. You know, Jamie Dimon talks about radical transparency. He goes in there, so does Hubert Jolie at Best Buy. And he starts his board meetings by saying, you know, here's what's happened since last we met. Good, the bad, and the ugly. This isn't a pre-prepared presentation. He just kind of gives it. Now, that's your board. That might be a little different than your investors, right? But in your, your investors, you know, definitely this world of no surprises, right? If they, it comes back to the, the Doug Baker quote of you can't wait to a crisis to, to fix it. You, if you brought them along and built trust all the way along, then if you have to come to them with a tough message, they know that you've been honest with them. They know that you've brought them along, that they've shared in the good, the bad, all as we go. And it makes those tougher moments easier to navigate, right? If you wait until you have bad news without that foundation of trust and transparency, it's just not going to go as well. You work with CEOs every day. And I'm wondering what you say to people who feel they make too much money, an obscene amount of money. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. Who, who am I to think about you know, how much money they're making? There, there is a lot there. I think what we've learned is that the value they create is, is pretty significant, right? Having a good leader or a bad leader makes a real difference, not just to shareholders, but to their employees, to all of the communities that are affected by their decisions. So you want to have a good one. Um, and then it, you know, it's within each organization to think about how they share that and, and what makes sense. But truly, these jobs, they do work hard for them. Um, you know, it's not up to me to opine on, on the dollars. They're, they're big, hard jobs. Do you think that the top CEOs tend to be friendly with their employees? Are they friendly outside of the workplace? Or is it typically like, hey, this guy's the leader. I only see him at work. And, you know, he has this, this kind of figure in my in my head of just being a guy who I never speak to, but runs the company and gives me a paycheck. Right. I mean, I, I suspect the scale of the company affects how much access you have and how much you're you're interacting. I mean, I, several of the CEOs did talk about the importance of keeping some healthy distance, even from their own direct reports, especially for those who were on that team and suddenly got promoted to CEO. Right. It's an interesting transition. You need to assert yourself in your new leadership role and have that credibility and that mandate. At the same time, in many cases, these are people you've known for 20 years. And so how do you navigate that? Um, I do think it's important to keep keep some boundary of sometimes you're the boss, right? And then doesn't mean you can't be friends and can't hang out. Um, but when those things get blurred, it sometimes gets in the way of your need to make tough calls, right? Especially on people decisions. And ultimately, you're accountable for making sure you have the best team and the best people, and, and you can't let your personal relationships get in the way of, of making those, those right calls when you need to. So you need to be a little bit careful. I think broadly, in terms of just with the whole organization, I think this is one where remote work has helped. I think we're seeing into each other's homes. You can do a town hall with 5,000 people. Um, and so in some ways, broadly, people have felt like they're more accessible than before. I know you write that the probability that a CEO will crash and burn is greater now than it's ever been. Why is that? 
I think there's a few lenses making the job hard, right? One is um, there's the pace of change and the expectations from investors and customers and in their industry is only increasing, right? You, you can't create, you know, one new iPhone or one new invention and ride that for 10 years the way you used to. So constantly having to prove yourself, improve, deliver, um, I mean, CEO or not, that's just the expectations of companies now, right? And then you layer on the fact that um, the CEOs themselves are under enormous scrutiny and everything that they say and do is being judged. There's just a lot more opportunity to do a misstep and for that misstep to be seen and to be broadly recognized. You layer all those on together and just the stakes are very high, right? And as you say, they're paid a lot. People expect a lot. Um, and so there is not a lot of margin for error. Carolyn, as you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me. So at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about what top corporate CEOs are doing that everyday entrepreneurs aren't doing that you'd like to pass on to our audience? I think the, the nobody told me moment in this is it's not about trying to memorize what they do and all these lists of, oh, if I take this habit from this person and this and I copy this red light, green light or whatever, it really is about the mindsets, right? These truly exceptional CEOs think about their role in a certain way. They think about themselves as the guardian of an organization that will live on beyond them and that they're trying to leave it better than they started. They think about themselves as the ultimate integrator who's trying to spin all these plates but make it all come together to be greater than the sum of its parts. And they have a real mindset of what's the work that only they can do, right? Around setting a direction, bringing the organization together, making sure they have the right people in roles. And how do they focus on that work that only they can do? And so to me, it was easier to think about how to, how to think and then all the behaviors flow from that rather than trying to copy a bunch of behaviors that may or may not work for you. And Carolyn, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? Sure. I mean, we're um, available on our, we have a McKinsey website where you can connect and, and get into Carolyn Dewar. If you type Carolyn Dewar McKinsey, it'll come up. I'm on LinkedIn. Happy to chat to folks. would love to engage. Well, we thank you so much for, for talking with us. What this a been great conversation. Really I've, really, fun. Yes. I've learned a lot and I really love the book because like you said, you can kind of just take the mindset of people. Yeah, you don't have to, to do a carbon copy of it, but I learned a lot by just reading a lot of the different strategi strategies and kind of piecing it together. Right, and for everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be a business owner or a absolutely. CEO. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the book is very accessible. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Our thanks again to Carolyn Dewar, co-author of CEO Excellence, The Six Mindsets That Distinguish the Best Leaders from the Rest. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.